0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 138. My name is Ariel ben Leman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are blessed that we have, we have finally arrived at this season that you have carried us along to the season of Pentecost. Shavuot, the celebration of the Festival of Weeks of the recognition of the outpoured Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Also, according to the rabbinic reckoning, the celebration of the giving of the words at Mount Sinai, the Asrat hadrim Matan Torah, the gift of Torah. And so, thank you, Lord, that we can now put the two bookends together. We started this journey at Passover, and then we began to count the omer and connect the dots between passover and pentecost and now we're finally at the season of shavuot of pentecost and lord um from a messianic perspective we recognize that passover is the celebration of being set free by the blood of the lamb which is of course the blood of messiah and because of the counting of the omer which connects these two events now we are arriving at shavuot which is the celebration of two great events the giving of the words of god which are the words of messiah and being filled with the spirit of god which is the spirit of messiah and so from pesach to pentecost all about messiah thank you lord that you are giving us this opportunity to celebrate your goodness and your mercy and to recognize that you are our god and we will uh, serve no other god we thank you for um, protecting us during these difficult pandemic times we thank you for continuing to provide for us uh, especially those of us who are on hard times because of uh, furloughs and unemployment and things like that Continue to um, give us a heart to reach out to those who uh, uh, don't understand the gospel, don't yet know Yeshua, they have not encountered uh, God on a personal level. Give us holy boldness and divine opportunities to share our witness with them. Be with us tonight as we embark on another study of your words, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Boshim Yeshua, Omain. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Arwin Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a—I'll um, just go through my announcement real quick. I'm a Torah teacher at the Congregation The Harvest, Tumal in Thornton, Colorado. You can see on my screen right now, I've got The Harvest website pulled up. Why is it so big? There we go. That's the size I'm looking for. Um, you can find us online at graftedin.com, www.graftedin.com. You can join us In person and online, uh, depending on what your preference is these days, if you're trying to stay safe. Uh, But if you do join us online, um, check out Mark's recent sermons. Uh, Look on my screen right now, you've got uh, a link to Pentecost, Freedom to Live Holy and Happy Lives. Mark's going through this uh, sermon series that he's engaged in on Saturday mornings, and um, uh, we're uploading, of course, them to YouTube, so if you can't join us... In person, will then stay safe and uh, follow us online. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at www.taytaytora.com. Join me at on my own home Torah teaching website. You can see on the screen right now all of those links, available information. Um, I uh, invite you to just uh, engage in the topics there, uh, find out what what uh, suits your interest, and jump right in. Most of the information is written, but these days much of it is being turned into audio commentary, like MP3 files, YouTube's uh, our audio commentaries, uh, iTunes podcasts, and of course, YouTube videos. So just, just jump right in. Speaking of YouTube videos and my uh, announcements here, head on over to my YouTube channel when you have a chance as well. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate Ministries. And um, I'm delighted and blessed to be able to bring this ministry to you and make it available to you. Um, I'm quite busy uh, with the YouTube videos. I actually upload, it says uh, updated weekly, but I'm going to change that because I actually update. I actually upload I actually upload things daily. Uh every day of the week I'm uploading something to YouTube. I think maybe one day a week I'm not and then I'm uploading to iTunes. So every day I'm busy doing something. So um head on over to my YouTube channel and have a look around at all the videos. Uh, that I make available. If you hit my YouTube channel, do five things i like you to do for me, okay? Number one, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Um, that really helps my algorithm out and it helps the ministry, right? Uh, helps get my content out and put it in front of other people. Number two, um, hit the little bell for notifications. Make sure you're in the loop and you're notified whenever I upload a video, which means you're gonna get a notification every day, right? Number three, um, what is number three? Hit the like button. Hit the little thumbs up button if you like the comments. uh uh, like the um the the content uh that you're watching uh number four share comments 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 leave comments on my videos um what you like what you didn't like questions uh corrections whatever those are great as well that also helps my algorithm too and i'll try and get responses out to you i can't always get them out as fast as i'd like to since i'm just one guy here uh, responding to you know 500 plus videos out there so and then um lastly um Hit the little share button and uh, share it with your friends and family member, your your social media uh, circle, and things like that. Share my content, and that would really be super duper. These are the live internet studies that I bring to you week after week. Let me just roll down, scroll off, scroll down, and rattle off some of the the um, logistics. Um, this is week uh, episode number one hundred thirty eight, and uh, meeting date is for this recording is May the tenth. 2021 USA date, and the meeting time is Monday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Sometimes we go over. Um, Normally, I would be talking, and I left this up on the screen, normally we would be talking about Romans 14, Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, and then normally we'd also be talking about the Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity uh, and watching a featured YouTube video. Instead of those two um, segments right there, uh, I'm going to... Do a special show tonight on Shavuot, Pentecost. I think tentatively I've titled it um, Shavuot, the Spirit and the Law, or something like that. I haven't decided on a title yet. So um, we're not going to be talking about Romans tonight. We're not going to be talking about the Shema and Trinity topics tonight. We're going to be talking about Shavuot, Pentecost, the festival of weeks, the feast of weeks, Uh, since at the time that this YouTube video is going to be uploaded and circulating on my channel, it will be the week of Shavuot. In fact, let me just, um, uh, should I pull up a calendar real quick? Yeah, I think I will. Uh, As I look at a calendar, uh, even though today's the 10th, according to the rabbinic counting of the calendar, uh, which many, uh, with the Pharisaic counting, many uh, 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 Messianic, uh, congregations follow as well, and I myself also follow it. Shavuot is next week on the 16th, 17th, 18th, um, starting at sundown on the 16th, I believe there, Erev Shavuot, and then the 17th Shavuot 1, 18th of May Shavuot 2. So I won't be having a live show that night, since that, that coincides on Monday night right with my live teaching. So uh, I'll take a break on that night. So we will meet again for our live study on May the 24th, 2021. Everyone take a break for Shavuot and enjoy the festival with your friends and family members and whatever congregational get-togethers you have going on there. Okay, so we will probably watch the YouTube video tonight. Genesis 17, 9 through 14 and Romans 2, 25 and 29. The topic is the power of a circumcised heart. We talked about that. We actually watched the video, I think. Maybe way back on um, Passover, but since we're coming full circle and talking about the pa- uh, circumcision of the heart, we'll watch that one more time. Okay? And then um, as I scroll down to the page uh, for details, uh, some important details if you'd like to join us for our live Skype studies, Monday evenings from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. U.S. Central Standard Time. It's taught via Skype from my computer to yours. So, You'll need to get access to Skype somehow. If you've got a desktop or laptop computer, you'll automatically be able to connect. I've decided to change how you can get access to Skype on my website, just make it absolutely dirt easy. You can see this big blue Skype logo on my screen right now. Skype group link is needed to join the study click blue Skype logo for link. Normally I didn't have that. I'm going to go out on a limb and hope that robot computers don't just click this link somehow. Um, but this is the Skype link. So no need to email me and say, Ariel, can you send me the Skype link? Just go to my website at tatesatdoor.com and the link is right there. You can't miss it. It's big. It's blue. In fact, let me click on it and show you what happens. A separate tab opens up on your browser or your desktop or your laptop computer. And it's telling me, Hey, this site is trying to open Skype. And if I say yes, um, you can join as a guest, you can sign in and create an account, but, it'll launch Skype in your own um, browser right there. And that's the easiest way you can just join Skype. You don't even really need to have Skype installed on your computer. You don't even have to have an account. You can join as a guest. And so that's an easy way to join me week after week. So no need to go to my website or no need to send me an email. However, if you are on my website at com, I would ask that you continue to pray for me during this COVID situation as I'm still unemployed and looking for work out here in South Korea, which is extremely difficult due to so many um, uh, uh, so many factors related to visa status and work status and things like that. But if you go to my website at tatesator.com and drop down to the very bottom in that black footer section down where you see some Hebrew writing, click on the little yellow doting button if you are being moved by God, to help support my ministry and keep me afloat during this difficult time. I'm very grateful for the gifts and the donations that have been um, coming in um, since this difficult time in my life uh, while I'm still looking for work. I know this isn't really the way that I can be fully supported, but uh, every little bit counts. God multiplies the loaves and the fishes, and so it doesn't really matter how much you give. um, I'm blessed to receive that. So that's how you can do it right there uh, securely. And as I always like to say, be blessed— as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, it is about 12 minutes, as I look at my clock, 12 minutes or so uh, since we started the recording and started this uh, study. Since we're going to be talking about uh, Pentecost, and the show is, like I said, it's tentatively titled Shavuot Pentecost, the giving of the... The Spirit and the Word, or something like that, I haven't decided on what my title is, but by the time this recording goes out over YouTube, I'll probably have something decided on. I have a commentary that I wrote on the book of Galatians, and in chapter 3, Paul hits both of these topics very nicely. The Holy Spirit and the law of Moses, and the relationship that we as believers have. He doesn't go into great detail, but there's enough information that I was able to to latch onto that and write a commentary and share my comments. And this is one of the most popular comments that I get on my uh, YouTube videos, and by way of email, and by way of comments, and interaction with uh, people out there. They're always asking, uh, what is my opinion, or how do we Messianics interact with the book of Galatians? Um, the giving of the law, now that Jesus has come, um, the presence of the Holy Spirit and power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Um, do we walk by the law or do we walk by the Spirit? Um, there are other passages I could have chosen. Romans chapter 8 is another one I'm thinking off the top of my head. Great Holy Spirit passage. But tonight we're going to study Galatians chapter 3. There will be no um, Romans study tonight, and there will be no uh, Trinity uh, Shema study tonight. So it will all be on uh, Galatians chapter 3. And then I won't forget to read our liturgy. As we're getting closer to the end of the show, I'll find a a stopping point, and we'll um, uh, read through our liturgy, and then uh, we'll probably still watch the short little video for tonight as well. All right, without further ado, let's just jump right into the study. Let me first read the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 3, so you can understand the context of where I'm going to be going with this uh, studies night. Galatians chapter 3, what I've got pulled up on my screen right now is biblehub.com. And um, this gives me access to the ESV version over on the left side of the screen and the Greek study Bible over on the right side of the screen in case I want to look up something. And that's SBLGNT version of the Greek. All right. And I'm not going to be reading the Greek of Galatians unless there are parts that I need to highlight, then I will. So let's just read this. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice right away, Paul brings up two topics. The Spirit and the law. And that's why I think I'll title the show Shavuot, Pentecost the Spirit and the Law, something like that. As I mentioned in my opening prayer, Shavuot is the celebration of the outpoured Spirit, and there's no mistake about that timing because Luke records that for us in the book of Acts chapter 2. However, the rabbis have gone on record as stating that the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, is also the same date as Shavuot. And so, that's the celebration in Judaism, not of the Holy Spirit, of course, because according to rabbinic Judaism, that's a Christian idea, and so they reject that. Instead, they celebrate on, on Pentecost, the giving of the law, Matan Torah, is what we say in uh, in Hebrew circles, the gift of Torah, Matan Torah. And so, it's interesting that Paul talks about these two topics. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Tutam namon thelu mathein af Humon ex ergon namu to labete ex and um, the phrase that jumps off the page for me when i'm looking at the english and the greek is um, uh, let me see if i can highlight it there ex ergon namu which is out of or by the works of the law, which is a phrase that receives a lot of mileage in Christian circles. Judaism isn't really talking so much about it these days, uh, but Christianity really, you know, their ears really perk up when you start talking about works of the law and the Holy Spirit. What does this phrase mean? So we're going to look at some of those technicalities tonight. Let's keep reading just through the uh, the passage, though. Are you so foolish? Verse 3, Paul says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? There's our ergo namu again, by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Again, he's got spirit and law in his mind, in his purview when he's writing these, uh, uh, putting these passages together. Uh, verse 6, Paul says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Paul's gonna rely on the scriptural example of Papa Abraham and how it is to properly understand our relationship with God, where it starts and where it should be going towards. And so we're gonna get a, little, a lot of mileage. I don't know if we'll do all that tonight, but I certainly did in my Galatians study that I referenced earlier. Uh, verse seven, know then that those Uh, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Let's continue. Verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, In you shall all the nations be blessed, end quote. Now, this is the ESV rendering of the um, Greek. And so in the ESV, it talks about justifying the Gentiles, and in a quote from uh, Genesis, it talks about all the nations, or a quote from the Torah, it talks about you, all the nations of the earth, are blessed. It shows up in a few different places, not just Genesis. But, um, in the Greek, it's help for us to, helpful for us to know that it's the same, um, Greek word, uh, ta ethne, the, ethne, the Gentiles. Um, and then we see it once again down here at the bottom of the Greek there, ta ethne. And so we could just understand that Gentiles is the word that was being used to describe people who were not of Israelite extraction. They didn't have their heritage rooted in the people group of Israel. That is to say they belonged to the nationals who were outside of Israel. Gentiles. It's not a pejorative word. It's not a negative slam. It's not a um, a bad word. It's not something that's trying to denigrate uh, the people, groups that are outside of that. Context demands what this word should mean. So uh, the Gentiles uh, in the English over here can also be understood as, and you shall all the Gentiles be blessed. Or we could swap the word nations there. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith uh, said to Abraham, and you shall all the nations. It's the same Greek word as the point I'm trying to make. All right, so let's keep reading. Verse 9. Uh, Paul says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This, of course, is his um, counter to the popular way that the influencers, uh, Christians call them the Judaizers, but I don't like that term Judaizer because I think it is pejorative uh, in a bad way. It's a kind of a negative, racially heated term, and it's used in the wrong context anyway. But so I call them influencers, the the, the people who are trying to influence Paul's Uh, communities to go in a different direction than Paul had originally foundationally taught them and instructed them. They had their own particular path of covenant membership slash salvation or righteousness. And Paul had his correct understanding of covenant membership slash salvation slash righteousness that he gained by um, the power of the Holy Spirit revealing that to him. So, those who are of faith, that's Paul's way of attaining covenant membership slash salvation slash righteousness. They are blessed along with Abraham and man of faith, as opposed to, read it in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So we have these two opposites going on, and we'll talk about this in a moment. We have those who are of faith, and we have those who are of the works of the law. And so those are the two um. Uh, contestants, uh, and we can see this actually in the Greek, uh, ekpistios are those who are out of faith, and yet exergonamu are those who are out of the works of the law. And so these are two phrases that are kind of diametrically opposed in Paul's mind. He goes on to say, for it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and to do them. Uh, he, he levels his indictment against those who are of the works of the law and lets them know that It's the very Torah that you uh, elevate that is going to uh, pronounce you guilty because you're not doing everything written in the book of the law, and everything must include having faith that we talked about in verse 9 earlier. Those who are of faith, and therefore verse 10 must indicate that you are not of faith if you are of the works of law, meaning you're of the flesh instead of of faith, or you're of self-effort or something to that effect, legalism. Verse 11, remember, we're going to read down the verse 12. Verse 11, Paul says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Here he simply says, by the law, ex, um, uh, uh, um it's evident by the law, in the law, literally in the Greek, in namo." But uh it's probably a gloss, a shortened uh use of what he already said earlier, um, works of the law. So it's likely that he's really talking about the same concept, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the works of the law the program that was prominent in the first century Judaism's that was um, being celebrated uh, through the uh, proselyte conversion ceremony for Gentiles who were wishing to be counted as righteous. It's evident that no one is justified, right? This is covenant language, covenant membership, uh, salvation language, uh, being counted as righteous. That's all packed into this word uh, justified, the Greek word uh, 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 uh For the righteous or those who are justified, it's the same Greek root word, ha de chios ekpistiosesitai. The righteous shall live by faith. That uh, famous quote from Habakkuk. And then the last verse that we're going to look at um, tonight, um, we'll actually drop all the way down, is in verse 12 where Paul says, But the law is not of faith. And I think he's still, again, talking about the the works of the law, but he's overlapping it with his general understanding of the law there. Rather, the one who does them, the commandments, shall live by them. That's why I think they're overlapped. There's a little bit of works of the law in his phrase, uh, the law there, ha dynamos in the Greek, but there's also the context of the works of the law, which includes the law, but in a very um, uh, 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 specialized way, the very nuanced way that Paul's using it. The one who does them shall live by them. Uh, That's a quote from Leviticus, and we're going to look at that Tonight as well, ha, ha, poiesas alta in altois, the the Greek, the one who lives by them. We'll look at a little bit of the Greek as well. Okay, so that's what's in store for tonight. Um, after looking at the uh, the raw scriptural data for the material, remember this is a study on Shavuot, the Spirit and the Law. Paul started out in verse uh, uh, one and two and three, uh, talking about. Uh, specifically 2 and 3, did you receive the spirit... By works of the law, right? The ex erigonum, out of the works of the law. Did you receive the spirit by this, this proselyte program? By the self effort? By this legalistic perspective? Works of the law by self effort? Or was it by hearing with faith? Ek akois pistios in the Greek. Out of hearing with faith, literally. Um, was the origin of the, the reception of the spirit? Was it, um, what, did it originate in your self effort? Right, the works of the law, or did it originate in the hearing of faith? Verse 3 uh, just reemphasizes the same um, question. Having begun by the Spirit, Paul knows they started in the right direction. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Notice he puts perfected by the flesh, that is a parallel to works of the law in verse 2. So in verse 2, works of the law is parallel to verse 3, perfected by the flesh. That's how we can know how they're working together. So let's unpack the commentary that I have available uh, on my website at tatesator.com. Uh, And it's a Galatians commentary. And the first thing I want to do for you is I want to back up and establish the context of this phrase, works of the law. I already did it earlier in my Galatians commentary, and I'm not going to read all of that tonight. So instead, I only pulled um, the section from the summary of that commentary uh, on this phrase, works of law. And I'm going to read down through this real quick. I don't think I need to stop very long and explain it. And then after we read this um, uh, brief overview or summary of this phrase, works of the law, we'll jump right into the um, comments of um, Galatians chapter 3, like you can see on my uh, screen right now, and we'll actually read uh, the comments to verses 2 and 3. I don't need, need to read the comments verse 1. Read 2 and 3, and then we'll drop all the way down to the commentary to verse uh, 12, where he quotes from Leviticus 18.5 about the man who does these things will live by them. And then uh, after that, we'll uh, read some liturgy from the Omer count, and then uh, a little bit more liturgy from the book of Ezekiel. And then we'll draw the study to a close, okay? So I don't think I'll be, be- before you very long. All right, you guys ready? Let's jump right into it. All right. This is from my own Galatians commentary, which is available at tatesator.com. And it's also available as a uh, YouTube videos. Let me see if I were to turn to um, uh, 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 my YouTube channel. That's not quite the page I was looking for, but um, similar. Uh, you can see on this YouTube, this, this uh, list right here, um, that there are several videos available for this particular um, study. Uh, what's on Paul's mind? Let me just play a little bit of it. Give me a second. Let me mute that. What's on Paul's mind? Uh, short clips from my Galatians study, exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary by myself. And okay, so this is a, a, a commentary that I wrote that is available, and then um, it's broken up into 116 little short average five-minute videos. You can see that I'm scrolling down through there on the uh, right side of the YouTube playlist there. So um, I encourage you to go. The link is also in the description below uh, of this particular video. So um, uh, go and watch whatever parts of the study are relevant for you, or just go to my uh, website and um, uh, follow the the study there. Okay, let's jump into this. Let me just read down through this, and uh, like I said, it's more or less self-explanatory. I don't think I need to... um, uh, stop and elaborate. In, section, um, in sections two and three, we shifted from our study of circumcision and began to dig into the socio religious background of Paul's famous phrase, works of the law. And what we learned, especially from Qumran's 4 QMMT document, as well as from the surviving rabbinic literature, is that works of the law is not merely a description of works, that is, say, self effort, like a Jewish person who's trying to just do the Torah. That's not really what works of the law is, even though that's the way it is popularly taught taught in today's Christian circles. That's not really the way it was taught uh, or uh, encountered in first century. I go on to say what Shaul is really talking about when he employs the Greek phrase Namu translated as deeds slash works of the law, is in actuality a technical phrase of the Judaism's of Shaul's, Shaul's day employed to speak of the social, religious, and ethnic boundary markers that separated Jews from Gentiles, and which undergirded covenant membership and group sectarianism. So right away, it's not simply a mere, it's not merely a simple doing of the Torah, it's rather a policy that was enforced in the first century Judaisms, and it uh, turned into a kind of a, a rite of passage among Gentiles and Jews, particularly for Jews wanting to gain Gentile, uh, uh I'm sorry, Gentiles wanting to gain Jewish status within the uh, Jewish communities. So that's what I mean by uh, sectarianism and covenant membership and things like that. I go on to say, indeed, the prevailing view of the sages of the first century, as far as we can tell from the surviving uh oral writings, the the teachings that turned into the Mishnah and the Talmud. So we had they were circulating in the first century as oral statements, oral teachings that were memorized and passed on from sage to student, sage to student, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then eventually they were codified and written down and, and and turned into the written versions that we know as Mishnah Talmud, Mishnah Gemara equals Talmud today. So if we can glean our understanding of the first century Judaisms from what we read in the um, Talmud today, the Mishnah on the Gemara, then this is the perspective. And there's other rabbinic writings that factor into this, you know, the 4QMMT writings at Qumran and things like that. But overall, here's what we end up with. Uh, the first century held to the common belief that Jewish Israel and Jewish Israel alone shared a place in the world to come. And we have a, a quote from uh the Mishnah tractate Sanhedrin 10.1, which references Isaiah 60 verse 21. Thus, I say, in their way of thinking, if a non-Jewish to enter into Hashem's covenant blessings and promises, such a person had to convert to Judaism first. That is to say, take on Jewish, legal Jewish status, which <clears throat> granted covenant membership, and then they exercised maintenance of existing covenant membership by ongoing loyalty and obedience to the Torah. So, are you understanding? There's two steps in the conversion process. The first step was to um, convert to Judaism. Or to change your ethnicity by going through, uh, I think it was like something like that three or four steps that involved uh, circumcision for males, bringing a sacrifice because the temple was still standing, um, paying a certain amount of tax, um, and then uh, committing yourself to kind of a, a smaller listing of, of Torah commands. Those were some of the, and oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Of course, there was the uh, the uh, the ablution, um, the um, the um, what we today call baptism in a, in a mikvah tank. Okay, so uh, those are some of the steps that involved your conversion from Gentile to Jewish status, and then after you made your conversion and publicly declared yourself to be a Jewish uh, person, you were then uh, obligating yourself to take on uh, the rest of Torah obligation uh, for the rest of your life as a maintenance uh, exercise. In other words, you could you were brought into this membership, this group club by your conversion, but then you had to maintain your membership position by steering clear of idolatry, by, um, uh, keeping the commandments of God, by, by being a, a, a you know, a good upstanding Jewish uh, citizen in Israel, things like that. So, so bring, it was this kind of two-step process of getting in and staying in, uh, that was, uh, and I think that terminology is borrowed from either, uh, uh, uh Ep Sanders or James DG Dunn I think it's Sanders the getting in staying in concept in the first century you got into Israel by your ethnic change from gentile to Jew and you stayed in in Israel um by keeping Torah and steering clear of idolatry and, and and staying loyal to God. So those were the two uh steps. I go on to say in my uh commentary, to be sure, this is also one of the primary arguments delineated in the letter to Galatians, all right? Um, this idea of uh, works of the law, this program of how do we become covenant members. Now, of course, today we don't use that language of how do we become covenant members. We simply, in Christian circles, we 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 parse it as how do we become saved? Because in the first century, the word saved was, um, a buzzword for covenant membership or becoming righteous or being counted as righteous for God. So it's, it's an overlapping concept. Saved in Christian circles uh, in the first century would have been equated with covenant membership or be counted as righteous from a Jewish perspective. They didn't really wield the word saved there, uh, like in a personal salvation sense. So as much as Christians do today, they, they, they really practiced more of a, what we would recognize as a corporate salvation, a group salvation, a salvation for all Israel. That's the way they kind of viewed it. And as long as you belonged to the people group of Israel, then you were in. You didn't have to worry about personal salvation. You just simply had to worry about group membership and identification within the larger group, uh, covenant membership within the larger group known as covenant Israel. And as long as you were in the group, then you were saved. I'm using ericose of my fingers for those of you who can't see me right now. All right, so um, this was the program that Paul had to wrestle with. Was this the right way to understand God's covenants? Was this the right way to be counted as righteous, i.e. saved? Where does Jesus fit into the whole picture if one can gain their covenant membership by being born Jewish or converting, and if one can maintain their covenant membership by simply keeping the commandments. Where does Yeshua's sacrifice fit into all that, and why is it even needed? Aha, this is why Paul spotted a problem after he became a Messianic Jew. For Sha'ul, I say in my commentary, no such man-made conversion policy existed in Scripture. Uh, Egregious to Paul was the idea that if Gentiles couldn't be counted as righteous in Israel— uh, uh, before they converted, then what Paul understood that this means that the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Papa Abraham did not include Gentiles. It was a Jewish only promise. It was a Jewish only program. Membership was exclusive to Jews. Torah keeping was exclusive to Jews. Access to God and his Holy Spirit and righteousness, i.e. everything that entails salvation was exclusive to Jews. And so Paul thought, this can't be right. If it's if it's Jewish only, then where do the gentiles fit in? He knew that the gentiles were being brought into the program by the spirit of God. There was evidence, right? We just talked about it in Romans in Galatians chapter 3. He knew that the spirit was being poured out. He knew about Acts chapter 2 and uh, the Shavuot experience. And so he knew the Gentiles were being saved, right? Acts Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10. Um, You know, Peter and Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles as Gentiles. So God was definitely working among the Gentiles as Gentiles, not as converts, not as proselytes, not even as God-fearers, but simply as former pagans. They were just Gentiles who were being brought, being called by the Holy Spirit into the family of God, into the family of Abraham, into um, the community of Israel. So if all understood his to not correctly then he began to realize that this whole works of the law this whole um, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivistic nationalistic um, uh, particularistic uh, perspective on um, covenant membership was wrong it was it was it was skewed it had good intentions but it arrived at the wrong conclusions because it excluded the Gentiles that was the big problem for Paul and the um, existing theology of some of the Judaisms of his day, was the exclusion of the Gentiles, the, the pushing them off to the side. So let's read about this real quick. I say in my commentary, by contrast, Shaul taught most assuredly that Gentiles were grafted into the remnant of Israel, i.e. the body of Messiah, the church, the ecclesia, the remnant of Israel, the same way that Abraham was counted as righteous by God in Breshid, Genesis chapter 15. How was that? Faith in the promised word of the Lord, viz. Yeshua. Remember, remember, we read it in Galatians chapter three, Paul uses Abraham as his model of faith, Galatians three six. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What verse is Paul quoting from in Galatians three six? He's quoting from Genesis fifteen six, and and uh, and speaking of Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's why Paul um, goes back to Abraham all over again, and. Key to understanding Abraham's salvation experience in Genesis 15 was the chronological reality that Abraham was counted as righteous, viz. saved. He became saved prior to his experience of being physically circumcised. That's not going to show up until Genesis 17, two chapters later in, in the narrative of Genesis. I understand this, the, the significance of the theology of this for Paul. Abraham became saved while he was still a Gentile. That's the point in Paul's mind. So he realized that salvation was open to Gentiles, i.e. non-physical circumcised people groups, and Abraham was the proof. So let's keep reading. Thus, the original Greek phrase, translated as works of law, has a Hebrew counterpart, Ma'aseha Torah. Right? Ergonamu is the... Uh, Hebrew and Maaseh HaTorah. I'm sorry, Ergonamou is the Greek, and Maaseh HaTorah is the Hebrew. What meaneth Ma'ase HaTorah? The Dead Sea Scrolls use this phrase as well, and particularly in those manuscripts, we have now come to know that it refers to some of the precepts of the Torah as adjudicated by each sectarian halakha and implemented by the various communities wielding the most influence over any given group, i.e. Essenes versus Pharisees, etc. So each group had their own um, kind of group policy that governed their group, right? We called it halakha uh, or uh, group policy and um, bylaws and things like that. And if you wanted to get gain membership into that particular group, then you had to go through their membership initiation rite, which was referred to as works of the law. And that included getting into the group. And as well as staying and maintaining your right standing in the group, right, keeping yourself as a right standing member. So works of law worked on both sides of that equation, getting in and staying in. Um, and that's what uh, we're looking at tonight. I go on to say in my commentary right here, to be sure, <laughs> sorry about that, uh, to be sure the common social perspective of uh, first century religious Israel taught that Gentile inclusion into covenant in Israel, only by way of conversion, read most often as circumcision, viz. Jewish identity in Galatians 5.2, was naturally at odds with the true gospel of Gentile inclusion into the community of Israel by faith in Yeshua plus nothing. So we're talking about, um, works of the law and ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism the whole covenantal gnomism idea that I talk about in my Galatians commentary so uh, prominently. Covenantal gnomism is the idea of getting in and staying in, and how does a person um, gain a right standing before God? In the covenantal gnomism perspective, then um, the word covenant there of covenantal nomism refers to the covenant that God extends to Israel. Gnomism in the covenantal nomism phrase refers to law-keeping or maintenance of Torah. So covenantal nomin- nomism is the idea of the expression of the... Uh, why are we keeping the Torah? For the express purpose of maintain, maintaining covenant membership. And it's done because we are loyal to the Torah, not because we are, uh, and because we're loyal to God, not because we're trying to get into the covenant. Uh, let me say it a different way. In the Judaisms of the first century, in their mind, they gained their covenant membership at birth. They were b- born into covenant membership because a Jewish man and a Jewish woman gave birth to a Jewish child. So that child was born into covenant membership. Uh, covenant status was conferred to him at birth right he was just simply born a covenant member and therefore as he grew he then began to realize his responsibility to maintain his covenant membership and his responsibility to the covenant and the and the community by keeping torah steering clear of idolatry being faithful to god bringing the the sacrifices when he sinned um you know following through with all of the um the the, the positives and the negatives and things like that so that's that's the general idea of covenantal nomism and works of the law all right i go on to um, say if we understand that quite likely Shaul's socio-religious use of the term circumcision in Galatians 5-2 is actually shorthand for quote the man-made ritual that sought to turn Gentiles into Jews before they could uh, uh, before they could be counted as covenant members then the letter begins to make more sense Hebraically and contextually. So are you understanding now? Um, uh, Let me just read maybe uh, let's see how much of this I want to read, I think you're starting to get the idea of of what uh, we're it, uh, up against in this particular um, uh, part of our commentary. Um, yeah, so maybe just maybe one or two more uh, uh, phrases here that I want to uh, read, uh, just uh, sentences. Works of the law, as I say in my commentary, is a religious slogan in Paul's day, uh, appears to have focused primarily on the way Torah and Jewish identity served to distinctively separate and elevate Jewish nationalism above all other social expressions of what was deemed righteous in God's eyes. and Now we have a quote from uh, the late Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, on the new perspective on Paul that I'm going to skip over real quick um, uh, in my uh, study. And um, uh, I think maybe I can read this part. And then we'll jump into the other, the rest of the commentary. By focusing on a test case verse in Galatians 2.16 in my commentary, we were able to ascertain that in essence, when Paul has Gentile inclusion into Israel in mind, works of the law refer to those sometimes locally autonomous group requirements that were being imposed on non-Jews, as outlined and delegated by each individual group functioning under the prevailing Judaism's of Paul's day. Recall that the Qumran community had uh, has unique works of the law that necessarily differ from some other Jewish community's works of law, etc. So when he uses the phrase works of law, he's talking about whatever... Uh, group policy was relevant to the Galatian Gentiles uh, and the proximity of whatever or interaction with whatever Jewish group that they were in contact with in that area. That doesn't necessarily mean that Paul understood that the works of law in Galatia and that region were identical to the works of law in, say, Israel or um other parts of, of you know, Israel Jewish communities. So it's kind of the same thing in, in church circles today. Wherever you go, depending on what church you visit or what not, whatever part of the world you visit, you're going to find differing uh, uh, versions of church policy, where they have their membership policy, their their bylaws that govern who they are and help to um, identify um, what different denomination is, is in view here. So, um, in fact, those bylaws and beliefs actually govern and the definitions of the de- of denominations today, right? And we've got thousands of different denominations. Thus, you can understand that's what, that's how I'm using the phrase works of the law, differing, um, group policies. Uh, but they had some things in common and, um, uh, uh, Let's read about their commonalities kind of across the board in Judaism. When it came to works of law for Jews, right? this is kind of speaking broadly of the Judaisms of the first century, we discovered that Paul most likely had obedience to are done for the sake of keeping Jews separate from Gentile sinners and ostensibly for maintaining one's righteous place in the covenant people in mind. So as far as the equality of equality of both groups, people groups and Messiah is concerned, Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, had to defend the correct Torah viewpoint in his letters addressed to the churches at Galatia, specifically chapter 5, as well as to the one in Ephesus. So uh, that's what we're uh, working with when we're talking about uh, these particular topics. Circumcision was therefore directly related to works of the law in that it was a shorthand way for Paul to talk about, quote, conversion to Judaism slash being or becoming a Jew slash maintaining covenant membership via Torah observance. All right. And, uh, 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 again, notice what's primarily different about my understanding of the legalism in the first century. The church they likes to believe that the Jewish legalism of the first century was a simplistic, do the Torah equal salvation? keep the Torah equals salvation. Kind of an obedience to the commandments, works of law meant keeping the commandments. And if a person, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, didn't matter, if a person kept the commandments long enough and perfectly, then they would be counted as saved. That's kind of the perspective that you're going to encounter if you listen to your average uh, uh, sermon uh, from a pastor or read your average Bible bookstore uh, commentary to the book of Galatians or something like that. They're they're going to describe the legalism of the first century as a uh, wood in what we would today term as a works, righteousness, or merit theology. However, I disagree with that perspective. Um, that I, I mean, it is true that you can't keep the Torah to be saved. I agree with the theology behind that teaching and behind those sermons, but I disagree with the historical accuracy of the way the Judaisms were um, leveraging Torah observance and for what purpose they were hoping to achieve by keeping the Torah. They, the Judaism's first century, they weren't keeping Torah to become saved. They thought that they were saved when they were Jewish, when they were born. So they were born with their salvation status. No. Instead, Torah observance came into maintenance existing membership that they gained at birth or at conversion. So Torah observance was the second step that, what, that, and that was still self-effort. Don't get me wrong. And it was still legalism, and it's still misguided. It's still wrong. Uh, God doesn't automatically count you as um, continuing on a salvation tract uh, as long as you keep the Torah, right? The the, the Torah just isn't that type of salvific tool. It neither um, uh, initiates salvation nor does it maintain salvation. It doesn't work either way. It's a sanctification tool right, by comparison to salvation. But it's important for us as we're studying through Paul to not get confused of the particular uh, nationalistic perspective that the Judaisms were wielding. Here's what I say as in the final paragraph in my commentary. Once again, we must remind ourselves that even though circumcision was historically misused and is misapplied as Jewish identity, there's no reason for us to continue on such a misunderstanding today in today's 21st century um, uh, uh religious discussions, particularly in Gentile Christianity. Nor is there any reason for the emerging Torah communities to shrink back from the Torah that God has clearly given for us to obey, provided we maintain our primary identity, and what is that? Not necessarily as Jewish or Gentile, as important as those are, right? We don't wanna minimize Jewish or Gentile identity in Messiah, those are important, but they're not our primary identity. What is our primary identity in the church, in the body of Messiah? Our primary identity is that of one firmly grounded in Mashiach, as Messiah, as believers. That's our primary identity. The Jewish or Gentile becomes secondary uh, to that primary. Okay, having established now the background to works of the law, let's look at my commentary. Um, I'll see how much of this I want to read. Galatians chapter 3, I start By quoting verses two and three all over again, Paul says, let me ask you this, did you receive the spirit by works of the law, that is by this initiation program of getting in and staying in, um, or by hearing with faith, which of course is the accurate. Notice there's two um, uh, programs that are opposed to one another, and they're challenging one another. There's the works of law on the one hand, and there's the reception of the spirit or hearing with faith on the other hand. So works of law is one contest. Hearing with faith is the other contest, the other choice. And the Galatian Gentiles are at the crossroads of decision. Which doorway are we going to embark on or embark through? Or which doorway are we going to walk through? Are we going to walk through the doorway of conversion slash works of the law slash Jewish identity slash covenantal nomism slash Jewish nationalism and that, all of that, uh, i.e. Um, uh, um, what today Christians would call legalism or um, merit theology or uh, something to that effect, works, works righteousness? so that's door number one, or are we Gentile Galatians uh, going to go through door number two that Paul's explaining to us, which is hearing with faith, which of course is the doorway known as Messiah. All right. So that's the contest. Um, I go on to talk about how that this is a very theologically heated uh, part of Paul's uh, book. I don't want to read through all that right now. Um, Let's read some of this though. Again, Shaul returns to his irony with a rhetorical question about the origins of the giving of the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, among the G- G- uh, Galatian believers. Since this study is entitled "Shabuot: The Spirit and the uh, uh, Shabuot: The Spirit and the Law," Shabuot Spirit and the Law, I think it's something like that. Um, then uh, it's for that reason that we're having this discussion about the Holy Spirit, because Pentecost, th- that season, is upon us, and. Pentecost is the recognition by the, according to Rabbinic Judaism, of the celebration of the giving of the Torah. So notice the overlapping things. In Jewish circles, they're celebrating the giving of the Torah, and in Christian circles, at least it should be, <laughs> they're celebrating the giving of the Spirit. So notice the two overlapping primary themes, the Spirit and the law. Shaul surely knows firsthand from whence the Spirit flows from God to an individual, so it's, it's a rhetorical question. However, in this portion of his letter, he's attempting to shock the readers back into some semblance of biblical reality. Having begun with the truth of Yeshua's atoning death, how could they possibly be considering going back on such a revelation? To the apostles, such a notion was ludicrously untenable, right? Uh, He knows where they started from. Why are they wavering? Again, knowing that among the Judaisms of Paul's day, that the Greek word for law, could include a reference to the oral traditions, and more specifically to halakha, that governed proselyte conversion, helps us to understand Paul to be challenging the validity of these ethnically restricted views of Torah among genuine covenant members. Surely lasting covenant membership is not acquired by human effort, viz. works of the law or legalism or something like that, but by placing one's trust in the ultimate son of the covenant, Yeshua himself. Right? Paul knows that. So, I go on to say in my commentary, our opening question might be better phrased as, quote, so... I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by becoming proselytes? That's the works of law phrase, ergo namu. By becoming proselytes or by believing what you heard, namely the word about Messiah. So, understanding how I'm putting back into context this phrase works of law, I'm turning it not into works righteousness, such as merit theology, the wooden keeping of Torah. Rather, the specific work that was in view was the proselyte conversion ceremony for Gentiles seeking Jewish legitimacy in Paul's day. Paul immediately provides his answer, a resounding, are you so foolish? Right? To suppose that human effort or achievement could, in some way, trump the grace of God as afforded by his only Son was an exercise in futility. The second question, then, is merely a clarification of his previous inquisition, stating this time using the explicit language of the influencers. Remember, I called them influencers instead of Judaizers, because the word Judaizer in its original Greek uh, form, eudaizo, yeah, or something, eudaizo, I think the, the root word, is um, it's found in Galatians chapter 2, around verse 15, somewhere around there, 15, 16, 17. Um, this phrase just simply refers to living a lifestyle of a Jew or living a Jewish-looking lifestyle, living as a Jew, to live as a Jew, the verb eudaizo, something to that effect, where we get the Greek, where we get our English word Judaizer, the, the noun. And so in its natural use, there's nothing wrong with living like a Jew, especially if you are a Jew. So when we call someone a Judaizer... And we use it, we're trying to shock, we're trying to insult them in some way, to, to shame them for whatever actions they're taking that are that are uh, resembling, that resemble legalism or something like that. In reality, the word Judaizer is not really the best term I think that we should be using. I, although I understand how the church has been using it historically. But to a Jew, it's not very, it's not very politically correct. And in today's cancel culture, you probably want to be careful using this term. That's the point I'm trying to make. I, I, I think it's not a very good term. I've switched over to the uh, the, the more neutral term, influencer, because the influence can be either be positive or negative. In this case, we know the influence was negative for the Jews who were influencing Gentiles to convert and, and become proselytes and turn themselves into Jews. That's a negative influence. But nevertheless, if we change the term and call them influencers, it's a little easier for Jewish people to listen to. All right. So uh, this was the explicit language of the influencers, viz. Uh, human effort, which referred back to the proselyte ceremony. I go on to say the historic position held to, by the later emerging Christian church, that the apostle was pitting true faith in Yeshua against any supposed generic tor observance in general, finds no basis from the context of Paul's argument here. You understand what I'm saying there? It's not just generic law-keeping when he says works of law. It's not that the Jews of the first century were thinking, if we do what God is asking us to do, he will save us. That's not the the way they wielded the Torah. thats not That wasn't their understanding of Torah. I say again, they thought they were saved by their ethnicity. They thought they were saved by being national Jews. It had nothing to do with keeping Torah at the beginning. Although it is true that your ethnicity didn't save you, but that's beside the point. The point is, they didn't believe in a works righteousness that was simplistically described as merit theology. Instead, they were brought into salvation-slash-covenant membership at birth, so they thought... And then as they grew and got older and realized their responsibility to the Torah and the covenant, then they maintenance their membership by keeping the Torah and steering clear of idolatry and being sure to love God and bring sacrifices, et cetera, et cetera, stay righteous. That was their perspective of getting in and staying in. Again, we know it's false that you can that you don't get into uh, righteousness or covenant membership by being Jewish and you don't stay in by keeping Torah or anything like that. So both of those perspectives are 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 misguided, but nevertheless that's what they uh, uh, believed in at that time. Paul, of course, used to believe that, but he made a break from that uh, once he uh, placed his his faith in Messiah. I go on to say, indeed we must allow the historical and social religious Jewish context of the letter to determine what is driving his consternation as a Messianic Jew who supports Gentile equality among non-Messianic Jews who do not support Gentile equality. (laughs) That was kind of a mouthful. Let me explain what I'm trying to say here. Paul believes in the equality of Jew and Gentile and Messiah. Paul also understands that his, that his, his, um, nationalistic counterparts, the non-Messianic Jews, did not support Gentile equality within Jewish Israel. Therefore, it was, um, it was Paul's task to explain not only Jewish and Gentile equality to the Gentiles seeking covenant membership and salvation, but to also challenge the nationalist perspective that was present in his day held by long-standing traditional Jews, religious Jews, he had to explain to them Jewish and Gentile equality. So he had his hands full explaining Jewish and Gentile equality to both groups, to national Israel, national stumbling unbelieving Israel on the one hand, and to the Gentile nations being brought into this covenant uh, uh, reality on the other hand. Wow, wow! You know, Paul had, Paul had a, a difficult job. I continue, read without the clarity of context, we in today's twenty first century churches will forever misconstrue Paul, misconstrue Paul to be teaching Gentile believers that Hashem's laws hold no valuable place in the practical application of the very promise inherited through Yeshua our Savior That's why we have so much negative um sentiments on law-keeping in in your standard Christian circles today, um, just because of the perspective in Christian circles that either the law has been done away with, it's been relaxed in Messiah, it's been set aside by Jesus, it was perfected by Messiah, he fulfilled it so we don't have to, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Um, we don't keep the law of Moses. We keep the law of Messiah, something like that. The old covenant brings death. The new covenant, the spirit brings life. The, the, the old, um, condemns, um, you know, the, the, all of these, these teachings that I'm sure those of you listening to this podcast and following this YouTube video are probably familiar with in Christian circles. Read without the clarity of context, we will misunderstand Paul to be denigrating the Torah in favor of being led by the spirit. That's the whole point I'm trying to bring up. All right. Uh, then in my commentary, have a comment. Uh, in my commentary, I have a commentary on verse five about He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Does he do so by works of law, by hearing with faith? I'm not going to read all of that since I've got. I, I'm uh, I'm running out of uh, time here in this uh, study. I don't want to keep this study uh, before you too long. Let me instead drop all the way down. Uh, let me just go like this real quick. Sorry about that park that there. Let me jump over to this second tab and talk a little bit about Paul's bringing in the quote from Leviticus 18.5, the man who does these things will live by them, speaking of the commandments and the way Paul interacted with this particular phrase. So uh, yeah, let me just pull up the verse first so you can understand the context. If we drop down in Galatians 3 and look at verse 12, Paul says, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Ha de namas uk esten ek pistios all. That's what it says in the Greek. The one who does them shall live by them. This is a quote from Leviticus chapter um, 18. So let's look at some of what's going on here. In my commentary, I talk about how the context of Leviticus uh, 18 is a promise in the life of the land of Israel. And does it speak of life in the land or does it speak of life in the age to come when it talks about the man who does these things to live by them? Is he talking about eternal life when it says live or is he talking about Moses? Is he talking about temporal life here in the land or is there kind of a little bit of both going on? With these data get us started, let us attempt to uncover Moshe's intended meaning of Leviticus 18.5 and its relevance for Galatians 3.12 by allowing Paul to explain it for us. So Paul looked at this passage and it was important enough for him to quote it in the book of Galatians so that it, he could explain what its meaning was for the, uh, the Galatian Gentiles. And of course, um, uh, this would bear relevance to the nationalistic Jews that uh, with the, where within the same kind of outside larger community. Shaul is going to eventually go on to use Leviticus 18.5 again at Romans 10.5 in a similar discussion about covenant membership. The meaning of 18, Leviticus 18.5 is formed by the context of the passage as a whole and obviously warrants careful study, but first let's have some fun with the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts. All right, I'm just going to play around for just a few minutes, look at the English and some of the Hebrew and some of the Greek, so just bear with me. Leviticus 18.5, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse two, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. Verse three, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Verse four, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. And then here's the verse that Paul uh, that uh, yes Paul quotes from, verse five. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 18:1 through 5, ESV. With the emphasis, like you know where you see the the underlining words and things like that, is my own. And then in my commentary, I have the Hebrew of verses 1 through 5. I don't want to read all of those, um, but I do want to look at verse five. You shall therefore keep my statutes uh let's see that's verse one verse two verse three verse four uh I am the Lord your God Elohim. uh I think verse five is yeah we go there we go right there um this is um the Hebrew of uh verse five that I just read there now here's what I have to say in my commentary. Um, interestingly enough, in the LXS, the Septuagint, the Greek of the verb does them, which is poiesos in the Greek, in the phrase, the person does them, Leviticus 18.5, it's actually an aorist active participle verb, which is often used to denote a general ongoing past. Thus, most translations rightly show having, participle, done, past. So, the person having done them shall live by them. As if it's, there's this reward for you having done something. So, you do something, that's the first part, and then God steps in and rewards you for your effort. That's the way it seems like the, the LXX Greek reads. However, in the original Hebrew, the same verb, yaseh, is an imperfect, i.e. a future tense, something that hasn't been done yet, right? So you're wondering, well, why did the Greek translators change it from the future? Those who will do these things will live by them, those who shall do them, as if it's something that hasn't been done yet. The reward is waiting for you to do it, versus the Greek rendering switches the verb tense over into a perfect tense as if it's already been done, right? Um, Those having done those things will uh, attain life to them. You know, is, is there any significance? Uh, also, I say my commentary just to get slightly technical for a split second. Likewise, since we reference the LXS in the Hebrew, let's also take a quick peek at the Greek manuscripts of our Galatians verse. In the Greek text of the Byzantine majority in the Greek Orthodox Church text, as well as in the two Textus Receptus manuscripts, we have Scribner's and Stephanus of Galatians 3.12. In the Greek, it reads, Ha de uk all alta, anthropas in autois. A wooden word for word reading of the matching Greek from these four manuscripts would list something like this. So this is what my this is my own um, kind of wooden rendering from the Greek that I just read. The moreover law is not out of faith, rather the having done these things. Notice the verb tense, having done, having done these things, person will live by them. By comparison, the nestle. And um, I think it's Nestle and Westcott and Horton manuscripts leave out anthropos, the man or the person, the human, etc. And they show, here's what they render in the Greek, in So they leave out the word man or person or human, the anthropos, anthropos in the Greek. And the Tischendorf manuscript differs from all of these in that it alone has the conjunction Allah, otherwise, but rather, etc. Instead of... Al, right? Notice it's just missing a an an alpha at the very end there. Nevertheless, the meaning is essentially identical with all the others. So, um, here's what I have to say in my um, uh, commentary. The research into the Hebrew and the Greek may in fact be theologically pointless, right? It's just uh, an exercise in technicalities that some of you will get some mileage out of, but most of you probably won't. I don't believe it it significantly changes the meaning of the verse, whether the verb tense describing Torah obedience is in the past or it's in the future. Right, from the Hebrew over to the Greek, or something like that. However, the central message of the verse is significant enough for Shaul to have it form the support behind his theology of the first law is not a faith clause, right? The law is not a faith. Life in this verse speaks of living safely in the land of promise, namely Israel. That's the context of the, the quote from Leviticus that grabs Paul's attention. But germane to his point is the fact that it's not the doing or having done the commandments that results in covenant membership. Rather, the existing covenant member will, in fact, govern his life in accordance with God's laws. So, to Paul, the sequence of events spelled out in Leviticus undermines the theology of the influencers, which Paul rejects with his counterstatement, the law is not based on faith. So, are you understanding what I'm saying here? When you read through Leviticus, Paul doesn't read it as a verse that's talking about attaining life eternal, or even maintenancing um, your life, uh, your your eternal life that you attained at birth, or something like the influencers might be talking about. For Paul, it's very basic. The Torah is the... Um, blueprint for living that God establishes among Israel because they are his covenant people. And so it describes the lifestyle not of someone wishing to attain covenant membership, like the influencers were uh, talking about in part of their Works of the Law program, the two-step program, proselyte, conversion, and then keeping the Torah. That's not the aspect of Torah keeping that Paul is trying to emphasize. For Paul, when he read back through Leviticus, chapter 18, he simply understood that life in the land of Israel is going to be governed by law-keeping, and the um, entryway into the land of Israel is for existing covenant members who were brought into the covenant membership when God cut a covenant with them and took them as as his own when he made promises to their forefathers and extended this covenant membership to Abraham's offspring. What I'm trying to say is that Torah observance for Paul was not something that brought you into covenant membership. It was simply the lifestyle of an existing covenant member. It was the right way to live because you were a covenant member. Thus, it is incumbent upon existing covenant members in order to simply uh, bring them into a um, sanctification process before the eyes of God. It doesn't bring you into salvation or covenant membership. And it doesn't maintenance your covenant membership under human effort. It is simply the existing, it's the proper way to live as a covenant member in the life, or uh, in the eyes of God, uh, led by the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. So I go in my commentary through some, um, um, uh, word, uh, playing on the words, uh, law is not of faith and things like that. Uh, and I'm gonna skip over all of that for tonight. Um, what I do want to read is, um, Uh, this last paragraph, and then we'll uh, turn to our liturgy. Here's what I say. For Paul, however, even though his opponent's theology included most of the right verses with most of the right players, sadly they had reached most of the wrong conclusions. In its broadest application, as understood by Paul, we're drawing our study to a close. So these are my concluding remarks. The law is not of faith, like we read about in Galatians 3.12, as quoted from Leviticus 18.5. The law is not of faith. This conveys the idea that the law is not a salvific document. It doesn't bring you into salvation experience with God, and it doesn't maintenance your salvation experience with God. The doing of the law was not designed to subsequently produce salvific faith in God, nor was it actually designed to maintenance your Uh, covenant membership as a saved individual. However, within the immediate context of his argument against sectarianism, right, remember the works of law is a description of the um, uh, nationalism uh, of Paul's day, where uh, Jewish uh, identity, uh, Jewish membership uh, described your salvation experience in God's eyes. Thus, the Torah was a Jewish-only document, in the in the concept of the first century Judaism's, this whole ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism and nationalism and particularism and things like that. This phrase likely means, quote, physical circumcision, that is works of the law, does not count towards forensic justification. Read here is genuine covenant membership by the influencers. So works of the law and keeping the law um, and things like that in Paul don't necessarily describe uh, uh what we might today term as uh, merit theology or wooden um uh, self effort so much as it described first the policy of trying to get into covenant membership of, of national Israel and then maintenance your membership by keeping uh the Torah I go on to say alternatively or alternately we could understand this phrase to be Paul's challenge that after reading both Habakkuk 2 4, as well as Leviticus 18 in context. Remember, he quotes both of those passages in uh, the uh, chapter that we're looking at, uh, Galatians chapter 3. Paul expects his readers and opponents alike to come to the same conclusions as he. Both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles as faith-centered covenant members follow in faithfulness to Torah. Let me just pause and let that sink in. If you are a genuine covenant member, which, for Paul, was attained at uh, by placing your faith in Messiah, then far from the Torah being um, removed from the equation for you, rather the spirit actually propels you into torah observance. We're going to notice that in the in the liturgy that I'm going to read here in a moment from the Ezekiel chapter 36. Torah observance plays an important role in the life of a covenant member. What does it do? It becomes the sanctification tool that God uses along with his holy spirit and his the rest of his words write the rest of the scriptures, to bring about the right lifestyle of an existing covenant member, to bring them into a place where they are walking righteously, because righteousness is already uh, theirs uh, due to what the Messiah has done in his atoning work. Make sense? All right, so let's keep going. This alternate reading may, in fact, be only a subtext at this point. However, we've already addressed the primary indictment of Paul's argument in our exegesis above, which is the version of physical circumcision that the influencers were teaching was a law of the flesh, and as such, God did not recognize it as faith-centric in Paul's mind. Their distortion of law was not of faith. Notice the underlying words I have there, law, not faith. I'm playing with that phrase, the law is not of faith. Okay, so that's going to do it for our look at the um, uh, uh, Galatians material from my commentary and this section of my um, uh, study tonight under uh, Shavuot, the law of Pentecost, uh, the spirit and the law. Uh, Let's turn now to today's Omer count or tonight's Omer count for Monday night, May 10th, when this recording is being made here. By the time you watch this video, we'll probably well be well into Shavuot and the Pentecost season will have be, been upon us. So this is the Omer count that we used at the time that this recording was made. In the Omer count, we've got the English right here, and we've got some translated into Hebrew let's just read both of these the english says blessed are you lord our god king of the universe who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the omer the hebrew right above it or to the right depending on which one you care to read it turns out the same as baruch atah Henu al sevirat ha omer Dropping down to the page just a bit, we have the English saying, Today is 44 days, which is 6 weeks and 2 days, of the Omer. And the Hebrew, to the very right of that, says, Now, let's turn. To our final section tonight there won't be a video tonight we're just simply going to read this liturgy and then we will um close in let me see do i want to watch the video i think i'll skip the video tonight okay contrary to what i said maybe earlier on in my um uh, announcement i think i'm gonna skip the video for brevity's sake okay we'll uh read the liturgy tonight and we'll close in prayer right after the liturgy okay because um, the liturgy is long enough anyway. All right, uh, Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, we're going to read verses 23 through 28. English, then Hebrew. You guys ready? Here we go. Ezekiel thirty six twenty two. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, I'm sorry, take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now look at starting in verse 26. He's going to introduce this idea of this new heart and the spirit. And we're reading this to remind us of what's taking place at Shavuot. The outpouring of the spirit at Acts chapter 2 was a down payment on the Gentiles primarily and on the Jews, but primarily it brought in, it ushered in the times of the Gentiles before the eyes of the Jews. National Israel received this down payment as well. Many Jews believed in Jesus and received the spirit that day, but Overall, national Israel is still in blindness. It's going to take an event like Ezekiel 36 to where we see national Israel as a whole receive the spirit and the belief in Messiah. What does God say in verse 26? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. These are corporate promises. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice in no uncertain terms in verse 27 of chapter 36 of Ezekiel, that when God places his spirit within Israel corporately, that they turn into Torah observance, not away from it. That is an important theological point for us to ponder as we read through the New Testament when we try to understand where does the law fit in for a genuine believer in Messiah, a spirit-filled Christian. Where does the law fit in? Well, if the theology of thirty of Ezekiel thirty-six is any indication of the answer, then we can aff- when we can. Um, aff- uh, Affirm uh, in the positive, and we can confidently state that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit within the life of a genuine Christian is to cause a believer to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey His rules. Okay, put plainly, Spirit and filling lead you into Torah observance, not away from it. Let's keep reading. Corporately speaking, God says, then in verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave. To your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Let's go back up and read the Hebrew of those same uh passages real quick, those same few verses, and then after the uh liturgy, we'll simply close in prayer. All right. Starting at verse 22, over on the uh right side of the page right there, uh the Hebrew see the Hebrew reads, Lakane emor levait Israel ko amar adonai adonai lo lolama anchem ani ose bait Yisrael, ki Lashim, Kadshi Ashira halaltim Bagoim, Asher Batim Sham. Verse twenty three The key et shmi hagadol, Ham hulal Bagoim, Asher halaltim, but to Ham. The Yadu hagoim, key Adonai no um, Adonai Adonai, but he Kadshiva hem le nehem. Verse uh, twenty four. Uh, V. lekakti et chem min ha goyim, et chem mikol ha arat sot, v. he veti et chem el admat chem. Verse twenty-five. Vazrachti alechem, maim t'horim, utaratem, mikol tumotechem, um kol gilulechem, atiher et chem. Verse twenty-six venata tilechem lev chadash vruach chadasha etein bechirchem vahasiruti et lev haeven me sabarchem venata tilechem lev basar verse uh, 27 now ve et ruchi Etain, bekirbechem, vaasiti, et, asherbechukai, telehu, umishbatai, tishmuru, vaasitem, and the final pasic verse 28, the final verse, vi shav tem natati laavotechem, vi hitem, li laam, vaanohi, lachem, le elohim. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight, and that'll do it for our study. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for Pentecost and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Passover, which preceded it. I thank you for the um, uh, fact that we were set free by the blood of Messiah at Passover. We counted the Omer, and we connected the dots, and now we've been filled with the spirit of Messiah at Shavuot, which is also the celebration of the receiving of the words of Messiah exodus 19 and exodus chapter 20 thank you for lord for these wonderful truths for bringing us to this place where we can celebrate you we can celebrate the goodness and mercy of our messiah yeshua and uh revel in his name and and lift up his name and honor him we worship you lord we acknowledge you messiah as the one true messiah of both jews and gentiles you are the savior of the world thank you for bringing um your sacrifice to us for causing us to be counted as righteous before your eyes and for ushering us into a right relationship with God your Father. Bless us Lord during this time, uh, go with us uh, throughout the rest of our week protect us from the pandemic keep us safe from the evil all around us help us to have a, um, a heart for the lost and for those who are um, so confused and stressed out and, and are, are, are uh, just feel like they're giving up because of all of the stressors in today's living in today's life, Lord, we have the light. We have the answer, and uh, help us to let our light shine brightly uh, to those around us, and give us holy boldness as we witness. Uh, go with us tonight, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua, O main. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good to the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them and he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer